Chapter 21. Mr. H. Chesterton Radley Todd. There lived in Los Angeles at that time one of those unaccountable individuals whom nature in fashioning endows with such contradictory qualities that their fellow creatures are unable to judge them correctly. He was a young man fresh from college whose name was engraved upon his cards as H. Chesterton Radley Todd, but whom his new acquaintances promptly dubbed Chesty. Having finished his collegiate courses, he had been at a loss as to what to do next. So he drifted to the Pacific Coast and presently connected himself with the Los Angeles Tribune as a literary critic, society reporter, and general penistic roustabout. Mr. Radley Todd had a round baby face, expressionless and therefore innocent blue eyes that bulged a little, charmingly perfect teeth, an awkward demeanor, a stumbling, hesitating mode of speech, and the intellectual acumen of a Disraeli. He was six feet three inches tall and dressed like a dandy. People estimated him as a mollycoddle at first acquaintance, wondered presently if he possessed hidden talents, and finally gave him up as a problem not worth solving. No one believed in his ability, even when he demonstrated it, because, as they truly said, he did not look as if he amounted to anything. That such a callow youth, predoomed to adverse judgment, should be able to secure a position on a daily paper seemed remarkable. But the Tribune loves to employ green and budding talent, which can be had at a nominal salary. The managing editor shrewdly contends that these young fellows work with an enthusiasm and perseverance unknown to older, more experienced journalists, because they have a notion that the world is their oyster and a newspaper job the knife that opens it. When they discover their mistake, they are dismissed, and other ambitious ones take their places. Mr. H. Chesterton Radley Todd was at present enjoying this fleeting prominence, and occasionally the editor would read his copy with genuine amazement and wonder from what source he had stolen its brilliance and power. So when the great aviation meet approached and every man, woman, and child in Southern California was eager for details concerning it and demanded pages of description of the various participating airplanes and aviators, all in advance of their exhibition, and when Tom Dunbar, the Tribune's expert on aviation, was suddenly stricken with pneumonia, Chesty Todd was assigned to this important department. Dig up every scrap of information you can possibly unearth, said the editor to him. Spread it out as much as you can, for the dear public wants a cyclone of aerial gossip and will devour every word of it. When there isn't any broth, don't fear to manufacture some. Any mistake in the preliminaries will be forgotten as soon as the big meat is in full swing. Chesty nodded, stumbled against a chair on his way out, stepped on the toe of the private stenographer, and slammed the door to muffle her scream. Then he made his way to Dominguez Field, strolled among the haggers with his hands in his pockets, and imbibed unimportant information by the column. Two things, however, really interested the reporter. One was the popular interest in the Kane aircraft, which was now in its hangar and invited inspection. Wilson and Brewster, the latter now openly in the employ of Mr. Cumberford, guarded the local airplane and explained its unique features to the eager throng. For although the Kane hangar was in a retired location around the corner, in fact, a bigger crowd besieged it 
on this last day preceding the official opening of the meet, then visited the older and better-known devices. Stephen Kane's remarkable flight at Kane Park, which was followed by his peculiar accident, was, of course, responsible for much of the interest manifested in his machine, and this interest was shared by the experienced aviators present, who silently examined the novel improvements of the young inventor and forbore to discuss them or their alleged merits. What do y'all think of it? Chesty Todd asked an aviator of national prominence. It looks good, was the evasive response. Camberfield, who is managing the Kane campaign, has been trying hard to get a man to fly it, but so far without success. Pity the thing cannot be exhibited. Young Kane, who was entailed as the aviator, broke his leg and is now out of it. The reporter made a mental note of this. He would find the plans of the Kane party and make a two-column story of their hope. Later in the afternoon, another thing puzzled him. Burton, the direct competitor of Kane, suddenly and without explanation, withdrew his airplane from the meet and actually took it from the field, closing his hangar. The officials and other interested parties were amazed, and the action aroused considerable comment. Chesty Todd sent it a story. He secured an automobile and followed Burton and Tot Tyler at a distance, until they placed the airplane in the old workshop in South Pasadena. He crept up to the shed unobserved and found half a dozen men busily putting the parts together again and preparing the device for use. But why, since it had been withdrawn from the aviation meet? Todd and Burton walked out and went to a nearby restaurant, where the reporter found them seated in a corner engaged in earnest conversation. Chesty made signs to the waiter that he was deaf and dumb, and secured a seat at a table within hearing distance of Burton and a chauffeur and overheard enough to give him a clue to their latest conspiracy. Then he went away, regained his automobile, and drove straight to the Alexandria Hotel. Mr. Cumberford had insisted on the Canes taking rooms at the hotel during the meet, and all three were now established there, Mrs. Kane having decided to go each day to Dominguez, where Stephen and Sybil could tell her of the events as they occurred. In that way, the blind woman would thus be able to participate, and avoid the anxiety and suspense of remaining at the bungalow while her daughter undertook the hazardous feat of operating Stephen's aeroplane. The Cumberford automobile was placed at the disposal of mother and son, and the young inventor could watch the flight of his machine while propped among the cushions, Sybil being at his side to attend him and his mother. The party had just finished dinner and assembled in the Cumberford sitting room when Chesty Todd's card was brought in. It was marked Tribune and Mr. Cumberford decided to go down to the office and see the reporter, since it was not his purpose to snub the press at this critical juncture. However, the young man discouraged him at first sight. His appearance was, as usual, against him. "'Will the Kane aircraft take place in the contests?' he inquired. "'Certainly,' replied Mr. Cumberford. "'You have secured a man to, uh, run the thing?' "'We have secured an operator.' Chesty stared at him, his comprehensive mind alert. Why did Cumberford turn his reply to evade the man proposition? Could a woman operate an airplane? Perhaps none but an inexperienced youth would dream of that possibility. Has Stephen Kane any family? He cautiously asked. 
a mother and sister. He is unmarried. How old is the sister? Seventeen. Oh, the age seemed to eliminate her. And his mother? Now it was Cumberford's turn to stare. The mother is blind, he said. Mr. Radley Todd's thoughts took another turn. Do you have any family, sir? I have a daughter, an only child. Mrs. Cumberford is not living. And your daughter's age, sir? Seventeen. She's the same age as Orissa Kane. Are the young ladies, uh, interested in airships? Mr. Cumberford did not like these questions. He knew that a reporter is akin to a detective, and began to fear that the youth was on the track of their secret. So he answered rather stiffly, Fairly so. Everyone seems interested in aviation these days. It interests me. Chesty saw he would not confess, so he tried another tack. Mr. Burton is your brother-in-law, is that right? Mr. Cumberford nodded. And you're, uh, enemies? Mr. Radley Todd, oh, whatever your name is, he said angrily, glancing at the card. I do not object to being interviewed on the subject of the Kane aircraft or the coming aviation meet, but your questions are becoming personal and are wide of the mark. You will please confine yourself to legitimate topics. Young man rose and bowed. Excuse me, he said in his halting way. Reporter is often forced to appear impertinent when he does not intend to be so. At present, I am, uh, well, face to face with a curious complication. I've discovered, uh, unintentionally that you're a, a aviator? We'll be in great danger tomorrow. If it's a man, I don't care. I don't like you, Mr. Cumberford, and I, I wouldn't lift a finger to save the Kane aircraft from going to pot. Why should I, right? Nothing to do with me. But if one of those girls, uh, your daughter or Kane's sister, is to fly the thing, I feel it my uh, uh, duty to say, look out. He started to go, but Cumberford grabbed his arm. What do you mean? He demanded sternly. Is it a girl? You won't betray us. You won't publish this. Not at present. Orissa Kane will operate the aircraft. Chesty looked at his boots reflectively. Don't let her take it, sir, he said. If you can't find a man, follow Burton's example and just withdraw your uh, airship from the meet. Better withdraw it anyhow. That's the best move. If you don't wish to court disaster. Explain yourself, sir. I won't. I'm not going to spoil a good story for my paper. And a scoop in the bargain. Just to satisfy uh, your curiosity. But, Miss Kane, can I see her a moment? Mr. Cumberford reflected. If you warn her of danger, you will take away her nerve. She's the only person on Earth competent to operate the Kane aircraft. And to withdraw the airplane now would ruin her brother's fortune and ambitions. I don't know her brother. I don't really care a fig for him. If I see the girl, I, I, I'll warn her, said the reporter. Then you shall not see her. Very well, but um, will you tell her to look out then? For what? For danger? 
When? At all times, especially during her flight. There's always danger of an accident, of course. This won't be an accident if it happens, said Chesty Todd decidedly. But who would wish to injure Orissa? asked Cumberford wonderingly. Think, think it over, said the reporter. If you got one deadly enemy, um, person who will stop at nothing, desperate, well, that's your man. With this, he coolly walked away, leaving Mr. Cumberford considerably disturbed. But he thought it over and decided to say nothing to Orissa. The warning might refer to Burton, who was the only person they might expect trouble from. Although to Cumberford's astonishment, Burton had quit the field at the last moment and abandoned the contest. Knowing nothing of Sybil's interview with her uncle, that action seemed to indicate to Cumberford's mind that Burton had weakened. Under no circumstances would he have permitted Orissa to face an unknown danger. But it occurred to him, after thinking over the interview, that Mr. H. Chesterton Radley Todd was a fair example of a fool.